Welcome, everyone. Uh, it's great to see such a large turnout for this discussion, this panel on the state of Iraq. Uh, in coming months, um, there's a good possibility that uh, the Islamic State will lose um, control over territory in Iraq. But that does not, of course, mean that the governance and security crisis, which is affecting the, crisis, the, the country and across the greater Levant, will also be over. Um, it would, in fact, also be a gross understatement to say that we've come to an inflection point in the U.S.'s now 26-year-long history in Iraq. When he campaigned for president, Trump had promised to shake things up. He said he would put an end to the era of nation-building in the country and appoint the most militaristic generals to eradicate Islamic State. Now that he is president, a wholly different picture is taking shape, perhaps. In Secretary Defense Mattis, National Security Advisor McMaster, and in other parts of the national security apparatus, Trump has appointed not militarists, but serious strategic thinkers who know intimately the limits of military force and who also understand better than anybody that force will not have its clarifying or stabilizing effects unless it is grounded in a realistic or reality-based political strategy. The administration is all of about a month old, and so it's difficult to speculate exactly how they are planning to deal with the wars and implosion of political order across, as I said, the greater Levant, from the eastern Mediterranean to the western provinces of Iran. So far, however, it appears as if there are two camps within the administration, one that is focused on ramping up the military effort against Islamic State begun by President Obama, and another which sees the larger task of suppressing Salafi jihadism as difficult, if not impossible, to do without also containing Iran and its proxies, including the Quds Force and Hezbollah. Indeed, part of the continuing appeal of the caliphate can be explained at least in part by the failures of states to provide real security from, among others, Iranian aggression. Without a strategy for reconstituting some political and governing arrangement in the greater Levant that works for the people there, uh, we run the risk of undercutting our military mission against ISIS, resetting the conditions that led to the rise of ISIS in the first place, and potentially also ceding the battleground to the region's various competing empire builders. One exception to this has been, of course, the Kurdish region in northeastern Iraq. The Kurds have held their own since the arrival of ISIS, not only because of the hero heroic efforts of the Peshmerga, but also because the state building which they began since the end of their own civil war in 1997 and the secular nature of their politics has helped to insulate them from the wars of empire and religion that have been taking place around them. But again, the Kurds' successes are, as we say in Washington, fragile and also reversible. And they have, in the war with ISIS, been, uh, the war with ISIS has exacted a very, very heavy toll on Kurdistan as it has on other parts of Iraq. And they are in desperate need, if you ask me and perhaps others on this panel, of direct assistance to be able to deal with this, this current crisis. So with that, um, Americans may be weary of nation building, um, but state building in some form or fashion is still interested in us. And the question before this panel today is how would we go about pursuing a realistic strategy, a realistic political strategy for facilitating state building 
in this broken landscape across the greater Levant? What would, in fact, a realistic approach look like? Where are our opportunities and allies and real partners on the ground with which we can work to build an order that works for the mosaic of peoples across the greater Levant? Um, Trump has, as I said, promised to shake things up. And uh, it seems like the old maps of the nation state borders of the old map of the nation states, which had occupied the 20th century Middle East, has broken down. Uh, it is not that borders will change. It is that the de facto borders across the greater Levant have already changed. The question is, can the US government and its allies rise to the occasion to deal with this uh, situation as it is in reality? Um, to address these kinds of questions, we have a really terrific panel here today. I'm happy to welcome uh, Representative Bayan, um, Sami uh, Rahman from the KRG uh, office here in Washington. Uh, also, Dr. Ken Pollack from the Brookings Institution. Uh, also, Ranj Alaldin, also from the Brookings Institution, though based in Doha. And my colleague here at Hudson Institute, Mike Pregent, former military intelligence officer and uh, also a person who studies the situation in the greater Levant very much. My plan is to just go down the aisle, as it were, and uh, we'll have some time to open it up to a wide-reaching discussion, hopefully. So thank you, Representative. Uh, thank you very much, Eric, uh, for hosting us and for this introduction, which really sets the scene for where we are in Iraq and Kurdistan. And I'd like to thank all of you for attending. So the title is The State of Iraq and the Republic of Kurdistan after ISIS. What do we mean by after ISIS? Of course, ISIS will be defeated in Mosul, but there are other places where ISIS is still holed up, uh, pockets of Sinjar, Talafar, Hawija. So ISIS will be defeated militarily, and the Iraqi forces are doing very well, particularly the Golden Division, and of course, supported by the Peshmerga and the coalition. But after the military defeat of ISIS, we all expect that there will be terrorism, and that will be the next threat that we face. ISIS will not just disappear. The caliphate may go, but ISIS as a terrorist force, we expect that something, whether it's called ISIS, Al-Qaeda again, or something else, will continue. And that is going to be the next challenge for all of us. In Kurdistan, is someone praying? <laughs> We need prayers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with prayers and practical help on the ground, we will need to continue to fight ISIS, ISIS Mark II, Al-Qaeda, whatever form of uh, identity this entity will take. It will continue, and it will hamper all of us in Iraq and the region. One of the things that we can say about Iraq as a whole is that before ISIS, every community looked at each other with doubt and with suspicion. Since ISIS came, there is now, I can say, no trust 
the trust has completely broken down between Kurds and Arabs, between Christians and Muslims, Yazidis and Muslims. And within each of those components, within the Shia, within the Sunni, within the Kurds, within the Yazidis, within the Christians, there is fragmentation. Perhaps the most fragmented are the Sunni Arab community, but there is fragmentation within every society now, every component in Iraq. How do we gel back together after ISIS is going to be one of the challenges, one of the many challenges. How can we encourage the displaced to return home? Kurdistan region is today home to 1.8 million displaced people from Iraq and Syrian refugees. Among the displaced from Iraq are 1 million Arabs, Christians, Yazidis. There are now hardly any Christians and Yazidis living outside of the Kurdistan region. Our population in Kurdistan has increased by a third. This has put enormous pressure on public services, on the economy, on our society and security. We have an open door policy for the displaced, but who's coming in? We have, of course, vetting procedures, but who is coming in? I think just yesterday, some people were arrested outside a, one of the major malls in Erbil. So this is what's going to happen after ISIS. How will the displaced people be able to go home when most of their villages and towns are rubble, when they are booby-trapped, there are IEDs, there are mines, there are bombs everywhere? There have been pledging conferences, there have been a lot of great speeches among the international community and the UN. But where's the money? We don't see it. We don't see a rebuilding program. We don't see a reconstruction program. We don't see, despite the promises and the speeches, that the dialogue on the post-ISIS governance would be in lockstep with a military operation. That has not happened. The military operation began in October and is going well, but the dialogue among the communities, among the political leaders has lagged behind. There is a history of the United States and the coalition in Iraq kicking the can down the road. There is a history of that since 2003. Article 140 of the Constitution not only Baghdad didn't want to implement it, the United States and the European partners didn't want to see it implemented either. The idea was to kick that problem down the road and it'll solve itself. No, those problems fester. They get worse. The wounds deepen. And to kick down the road the problem that we're facing now with terrorism that will come after the caliphate, with a deep, deep mistrust among the different components, with the interference from the neighbors, with militias left, right, and center, some of them legalized, some of them not, armed groups everywhere. These problems can no longer be kicked down the road and they need to be dealt with. We need internal engagement within Kurdistan, within the wider Iraq, but also we need the United States to stay engaged with Iraq and with Kurdistan.
Thank you. We need the United States to think long term. I recognize that the people of America are sick and tired of hearing about Iraq and maybe Afghanistan. These are long wars, long engagements, a lot of blood, a lot of money has been spent there. <clears throat> but to withdraw rapidly without the problems really sealed and dealt with will create another bigger problem that the United States will only have to come back and deal with. We need the United States to stay engaged diplomatically, a heavy diplomatic presence and engagement. We need the United States to keep a military presence in Iraq and in Kurdistan. Not only that will be a comfort to the minorities, to the Christians, Yazidis, and others, that there is a US military presence in Iraq and in Kurdistan. It will also give the United States a bigger platform. The numbers don't have to be great, but it will give the United States a platform in the heart of the Middle East from which it can continue its policies. The other question raised by the title of this meeting or this discussion is the Republic of Kurdistan. It's no surprise to anybody that we want an independent Iraqi Kurdistan. President Barzani has spoken about this very openly and publicly. He called for a referendum last year. He has opened the dialogue with Baghdad. It is now the topic of conversation in every high-level meeting with Baghdad, including in Munich very recently, and also in Baghdad and Erbil. We wish to achieve independence through dialogue and through agreement. We haven't heard anyone, not the United States, none of the European countries, deny that the people of Kurdistan have the right to self-determination. What they often say is, well, the priority is ISIS. Well, you need to agree with Baghdad. We don't disagree with any of that. Of course the priority is defeating ISIS. Of course we need to agree with Baghdad but we have the right to self-determination. We have begun the process and we will continue on that path. And I believe that an independent Iraqi Kurdistan will be one of the best partners to Iraq. We will be great trading partners. We could have military pacts. We could have economic pacts with Iraq. And we will be a strategic and reliable partner to the United States. The United States has partners in the Middle East. How many are that reliable? The Kurds, Kurdistan in Iraq, and independent Kurdistan will be that strategic and reliable partner. On that note, I will end my comments and pass on to other colleagues. Thank you. Thank you. Ken. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, lovely to be up here. Uh, lovely to be on the stage with Bayan, with Ranj, Mike, um, and to be discussing this topic because I agree it's an extremely important one. And uh, as we've shifted into what is hopefully going to be the last stage, the last military phase of the battle for Mosul, uh, and we have a new administration uh, taking office, it's a good time to be talking about this. Um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this part of it because I think everyone knows what I'm about to say, which is that the military victory that we are likely to achieve over Daesh within the next, inshallah, three to six months is going to be meaningless unless there is also significant political change. 
Iraq is a civil war. It has been in civil war, arguably since we invaded, took down the government and put nothing in its place in 2003, certainly since we allowed it to slide into civil war since 2005. And we know a tremendous amount about these civil wars, and Iraq has followed the trajectory of civil wars perfectly. Kurdistan has to be one of the most important issues that gets resolved after Daesh has been defeated if we don't want to see son of Daesh in Iraq, just as Daesh was the son of Al-Qaeda. And in addition, Kurdistan is problematic for Iraq in a whole variety of other ways, some of which I'm going to come to in just a moment. I will tell you as a student of history, as a student of Iraqi history, and Phoebe Marr is sitting in the audience, so I'm saying that very, very carefully. I think Iraqi history makes it crystal clear that the marriage of Kurdistan and Arab Iraq was a mistake. It never should have been included in Iraq after the First World War. Theirs has been an unhappy marriage since the beginning, although like all marriages, it's had its really, well, actually all bad marriages, Right? Uh, it's had its really horrific moments and then just its bad moments. Okay? But think about the period from 1961 to 1991. During that 30-year period, <coughs> the Kurds were at war with the central government in Baghdad for 20 of those years. And the only thing that brought it to an end was the de facto independence of Kurdistan brought about by the American intervention after the first Gulf War. Had it not been for that, I think that we could have all looked forward at that time or looked back at this point on another 25 years of combat and conflict between Erbil and Baghdad. You just heard Bayan say it, but everyone in this room has heard it over and over and over again. The Kurds do not want to be part of Iraq. It is very problematic for them, and they fight because of those problems. Now, I come at this as an American. I have plenty of Kurdish friends, I have plenty of Iraqi friends, I got Turkish friends, Iranian friends, you name it. I come at this purely as an American. The United States does not need more conflict in the Middle East. We need less. But the status quo is not necessarily the answer. And unfortunately, for too many years, that's what the US believed, that we just keep the status quo in place, and that means less conflict. I think especially since 2011, we have learned that that is completely wrong-headed. The status quo all across the Middle East is not holding. There needs to be change. One of the most remarkable things in the last couple of years is seeing the rulers of formerly determined status quo governments like Saudi Arabia come to this recognition and say, if we do not change ourselves, we're going to be swept away. The future of Iraq cannot be its past. Its past has not worked, and we have seen constant repeated conflict between Kurds and the rest of Iraq. That's got to change moving forward. And Sami is, confuse you with your father, I apologize. Bayan is absolutely right that at the end of the day, 
this has got to look like, this has got to be independence. This has got to be a meaningful change. That is the only thing that's going to, to end this endless constant conflict. And let's understand, this is bad for Kurds, this is bad for the rest of Iraq, and this is bad for Americans. Right? So we've got to move past it. I think we also need to recognize that as we think as Americans about the future of Iraq and what needs to happen there, again, the inclusion of Kurdistan has screwed the situation up badly. The Iraqi constitution is not a good document. Right? It has lots of different problems, but one of the most important problems is that the Kurds understandably insisted on all kinds of clauses in the Constitution which were designed to protect their interests and their autonomy. Again, completely understandable. The problem is that has created all kinds of other problems for the rest of Iraq. Right? Iraq needs to figure out what it's going to look like moving forward. It needs to figure out what relations are going to look like between the various Sunni-dominated provinces and the various Shia-dominated provinces. It's got to figure out what relations are going to be like among a whole variety of parties, which to this day remain largely sectarian. And having the overlay of the Kurds, having the Kurds endlessly coming in and saying, you can't do this, you must do that, because that's what protects their interests is screwing up reconciliation between Sunni and Shia Arabs. Having Basra go independent, having Basra declare itself a region is not going to help Iraq. Right? But as long as the Kurds are part of Iraq, they are going to insist on those regionhood clauses in there. There needs to be fundamental political change in Iraq, and Kurdistan's inclusion in Iraq screws up the chances that we're going to get real national reconciliation and a functional Iraq on its own terms. And so for all of these different reasons, we have got to start thinking outside the box. As I said, the past of Iraq cannot be its future. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked for anyone, including, at this moment, from my perspective, most importantly, for the United States of America. Okay. Now, what does that mean moving forward? Quite frankly, I think it needs, means we need to have an independent Iraqi Kurdistan. Right? What that state looks like, I don't care very much. Right? At the end of the day, it is going to be up to the Kurds and the Iraqis to determine what the borders are what the status of Kirkuk is, what the status of minorities are, what the relations are between those two states. I don't see the United States having a dog in that fight. The one important factor for the United States is that independence should not itself be a cause of new conflict. Right? That's our one consideration. We need this to be a peaceful process, very much along the lines of what we saw in the dissolution of Czechoslovakia. That needs to be the model. And I would love it, honestly, if Kurds and Iraqis could simply sit down at the table and handle this all themselves. And I think that some of the initiatives that we have seen recently from President and Prime Minister Barzani and from Prime Minister Abadi, these are great. They're wonderful building blocks. And hopefully, they will take off and go at their own pace. And we won't have to do anything but sit back and welcome the results. I'm skeptical that that's going to be the case. 
I suspect very strongly, again, exactly as Bayan just laid out, that they're going to need help. And I think that that help is going to have to come from the United States of America. And I think we should. Again, we do have a dog in this fight. We keep getting sucked back into Iraq. Every time we try to walk away, every time we try to just slap a Band-Aid on the problem and go home, Iraq comes back to bite us in the behind. Right? And we keep getting sucked back there. And rather than walk away one more time and pretend that the Kurds and the Iraqis don't have any problems or they'll solve it by themselves, which hasn't worked in the past, I'd like to see us actually say, you know what, we need to be proactive. We need to help them down this path. We need to start right now, and I think that it would be enormously helpful to both Baghdad and Erbil if there were a process that began immediately to start to negotiate what the separation would look like. I think it will be a process of years. I think that we're talking about probably at least two or three, but probably more like five or 10 years to negotiate all of the details. Right? But we need to get it started and started soon. That will take tremendous pressure off of the political leaders on all sides. If the Kurds can say, we've got a process in place, let's let that play out. And if the Iraqi leadership can say, Kurdistan, forget about it. You guys were taking care of you in the process. Stop mucking around in the necessary process of national reconciliation that we need to solve on our own terms here in Baghdad. Got to start now. And I think, unfortunately, for better or worse, and hopefully for better, the United States needs to lead that process. Because if not, I'm afraid we're going to be back leading yet another coalition, fighting yet another civil war in Iraq. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Ron. Thanks very much. And thanks to the Hudson Institute for uh, having me here. Uh, I'm going to bring just a bit of optimism to the table, um, because you know, I don't think Iraq's future uh, and the future of the Kurdish ARG Baghdad relationship has to be determined via conflict. Uh, I was in Baghdad and Kurdistan a couple of weeks back, and I think it's when you're truly on the ground interacting with the political class, the people who are defining this process, you realize actually that um, while skirmishes in some disputed areas, more volatile, sensitive areas should not be ruled out, full-scale conflict is unlikely. These actors that, we're, that we've been discussing, they have almost daily interactions. Some of the people or the politicians, officials, that, whose statements via social media, uh, the media in general that you read, that can seem very divisive, are actually in constant touch. They have a lot of history that goes way before the 2003 war. Uh, so this, these interactions, I think, uh, uh, not to mention the, the, the military cooperation and interactions that have been taking place during the course of the Mosul uh, operation or liberation, which has been largely understated, uh, in my opinion. These can go a long way towards building uh, goodwill, uh, towards uh, reconciling differences. However, there are the usual spoilers uh, in Iraq. What Iraq needs after Mosul, and more generally, is viable, credible governing structures, especially in northern Iraq, because there will be a vacuum uh, after this operation is over. There will still be a threat of Daesh or ISIS to deal with. And that just doesn't exist at the moment. What I noticed in, in Baghdad especially was a sense of fatigue um, and, and, and in, not, not so much an inability to articulate a vision for the future, but rather just fatigue, um, which is being capitalized on by recently emerged leaders, uh, individuals, militia heads, 
Um, they can be anything from your local tribe, your local, uh, it, can be, it can be a cleric, for example, who are taking advantage of the inability of the political class to reform Iraq's institutions. They're the ones who are engaged in this war on ISIS, who are proving their credentials. Uh, and by those, I'm referring to the various factions within, let's say, the Hashid, because it's not so much the traditional political class that we've come to know over the past decade, which could uh, disrupt a, a potential Kurdistan, which could potentially provoke another uh, conflict, full-scale conflict between uh, the different factions or between Kurdistan and Baghdad. But rather, it's these elements which thrive off uh, violence, which, uh, whose making is the disorder and the confrontations of the post-2003 Iraq. So the first step, I think, for the international community, for the United States, uh, should be to identify the actors, the players, that can help uh, push Iraq in the right direction. Because unfortunately, at the moment, it's the more extreme, um, generally Iran-aligned actors that are shaping the political and social environment in Iraq. There are elections coming up. Those elections will show just how effective these actors have become. And I fear that we've reached a point where uh, the, the emergence of these leaders who are heavily armed, who have substantial resources, who have substantial uh, popular legitimacy, will be shaping the future of the Iraqi state and its institutions. Now, the problem for the United States and for the international community is, you know, what can you really do about it? Because you can't really militarily combat the actors that are going to potentially push Iraq or Baghdad and Kurdistan or different factions within the Iraqi society towards confrontation. So there has to be some creative thinking in how you stabilize the environment. I wouldn't say resources should no longer be focused on the Iraqi state and its institutions and it's rather incompetent, let's say, political class. That still has to continue. However, that doesn't mean we shouldn't invest in, let's say, the more grassroots communal dynamics. There are actors in, in Baghdad, in Najaf, in Kabbalah, that want to engage more closely with the US, with the West, that lack the resources, the ability to engage in the kind of activities that can help stabilize Iraq, that can remedy things like sectarian issues, that can help uh, um, moderate tensions between uh, Kurdistan and Baghdad. And I think when it comes to the issue of a, of a, of a Kurdish state, I think Bayan touched on this. It's, it's an issue of clarity, I think. Um, let's assume that a Kurdish state is inevitable, but it's an issue of the terms and conditions by way of which the Kurds end up seceding. And there isn't a constructive debate taking place at the moment. And that's because the narrative, this war of narratives, uh, is being shaped by extremists. Uh, and by extremists, I mean actors that thrive off the kind of anti-Kurdish or anti-Arab popular uh, sentiments. Uh, the United States, I think, when it comes to Iraq, uh, there has to be a coercive element to its strategy. That means maintaining the uh, military presence uh, in the country. For all its faults, when the U.S. was in Iraq, it did play the role of an honest broker. Some of its most stable periods was by way of uh, U.S. brokered agreements, uh, initiatives. And coming back to the, to the Hashid, because I think this will be one of the uh, fundamental challenges the Iraqi state will face. Iraq needs non-sect-based, pluralistic, respected institutions. When we talk about the Hashid, I think, well, firstly, the concept itself is rather useless. Uh, the Hashid is 
not yet the kind of organization that has adopted its own identity. There are factions within Hashid that are defining its activities, that are shaping its identity. We need to start talking about the specific factions within the PMU, within the Hashid, for now. And within the Hashid, there are actors that are vehemently Iraqi nationalistic, that are state-aligned, that are anti-Iranian. They refuse to meet the Iranians uh, unless there are other Iraqi officials present. They refused uh, direct arms and resources from the Iranians. And these are the kind of actors that envisage an Iraq where they end up being integrated into the Iraqi army, into its security forces. Whereas the more Iran-aligned actors, the actors that uh, emerged after or from the chaos and violence after 2003, the, they see the Hashid as a way of not only legitimizing their presence, uh, but a way of sustaining their existence because their making is violence and conflict. It was very telling after uh, the Muslim uh, liberation that almost immediately some, some of the Iran-aligned factions announced they'll be extending their war into Syria. That's a message that these actors are not going anywhere anytime soon, even if uh, Mosul is, is liberated, even, even if Iraq uh, stabilizes. All in there. Thanks, Raj. Um, uh, thanks for having me on the panel. And thanks for Hudson not firing me because I got a Parsi in a panel a month ago. So appreciate that. Well, good to be on a panel with you, Raj, Ken, Bayan, and Eric. Um, I like what Ken had to say, Iraq's future cannot be its past. And I like that you try to bring us back into a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel scenario. I'm going to take us back into the tunnel a little bit here. So current U.S. strategy in Iraq is actually pushing us towards Iraq repeating the mistakes of its past on steroids. And we're talking about the current strategy in Iraq, specifically the Mosul offensive, the Ramadi offensive, the Tikrit offensive, the Fallujah offensive are all the same. Uh, it'd be nice to be able to go back to each one of those cities and see what's changed. And I know you've probably been there, Dr. Abbas, but it'd be nice to be able to see how Sunnis are returning to these towns and what the quality of life is now and what the security situation is. Um, my background, I was embedded with the Peshmerga in Mosul in 2005, 2006. At that time, the Peshmerga, or the Kurds, commanded the 2nd Iraqi Army Division, the 3rd Iraqi Army Division, and the 4th Iraqi Army Division. There are no more Peshmerga in the Iraqi security forces at battalion, company, or brigade strength anymore. You have a handful of leaders that wear the Iraqi Army uniform, but the Peshmerga, recognized in 2005 and 2006 as the only government-approved paramilitary force uh, back in the day was the Peshmerga. Um, now there's a statement out there where you hear the Operation Enduring Freedom uh, spokesperson and also the press start using this term, government of Iraq approved paramilitary forces. That's another way to say IRGC-backed militias in the Hashid al-Shabi. And like I agree, the Iski component of the Hashid al-Shabi the Muqtadr al-Sadr component of the Hashid al-Shabi tend to be more nationalist, tend to tilt away from Iran. But I'm concerned about Qatab Hezbollah. I'm concerned about Asab Ahul Haq and, and Akram al-Kabi's group as well, some of those groups that are there, because they are directly aligned with Qasem Soleimani and the RGC. And Hadi al-Amri and Mohandas command and deputy command the Hashid al-Shabi. And as we look to 2005, repeating the mistakes of the past. Um, in 2005, the Sunnis set out the election because they didn't trust Baghdad, and they didn't trust the Peshmerga, and they didn't trust the United States. 
it's the same situation today. With these, with these operations, I'm concerned that in 2018, when we have elections, that the militia leaders stand to gain big time. You could possibly see a case Ghazali or a, or a, uh, a Ahmed al-Muhendis actually be PM candidates. And that's unheard of. In 2007, Case Ghazali was in U.S. detention. Um, Hadi Al-Amri was telling General Barbero he had no ties to Badakor. Um, and uh, uh, Al-Muhendis was in Iran, afraid to come into Iraq. Soleimani was in Iran, afraid to come into Iraq. Now you have them leading victory parades after Ramadi, Tikrit, and Fallujah. And they have to be part of the Mosul offensive, whether they are or they aren't. They will tell the Iraqis that they were part of it because they are the ones, just like you said, the legitimacy of these militias and their roles that they played when, the Hashra, when ISIS moved into Mosul in 2014. They are able to tell Iraqis, we saved Baghdad from a Daesh invasion. And Iraqis believe that. Uh, Iski and uh, the office of Muqtad al-Sadr have been marginalized, not only by Iran, but also by the government of Baghdad. They are the ones that want to work with the Europeans and may want to work with the Americans again to do things. Uh, and as Ken mentioned, reconciliation is so important, but let's go back to the year when we had everything in place, and that was the surge. That was when Mattis was in Al-Ambar, followed by General Allen. That's when H.R. McMaster was leading a team to identify sectarian actors in the security ministries and the intelligence services. And that actually allowed me to get a brief stint uh, inside of Prime Minister Maliki's office of the Commander-in-Chief as the non-Arabic-speaking Texan who didn't know what the hell he was doing, and they were glad to have me there, except I understood 80% of what they were saying, and that was enough to hear. Um, so back then, U.S. leverage, U.S. manpower, U.S. commitment to push reconciliation. And we had the Sons of Iraq, we had the Awakening, and we had Sunnis finally in the security apparatus, but not uniformed necessarily, but in these temporary contracts in the Sahwa and the Sons of Iraq. But we had a chance. And Kim was there during the, the JSAT briefs that McMaster and Petraeus would put together to get a lot of smart people around a table and just let them go back and forth to absorb all the good ideas to, to implement strategy. And Ahmed was there during those times as well. Um, we had leverage. We were doing things. And then, like you said, we took the eye off the ball uh, during the election. Uh, 2008, there was a message sent to Iraqis in 2008 when, when Petraeus took then-candidate or President-elect Obama on a tour of the battlefield during the surge and showed the successes. And, and the commander-in-chief, the, the, the incoming commander-in-chief said, uh, we're, we're leaving, we're, we're out of here. And that was a message to Qasem Soleimani to step up his operations. And as we left and as we stopped engaging with the Iraqi army, um, we didn't take the time to realize that Maliki had already coup-proofed the military. He made it a Baghdad loyalist security and intelligence apparatus. While he was able to tout Sunni commanders and Sunni alliances on Al-Ambar and Nineveh province, Al-Ambar didn't have designs on Baghdad. They wanted to just be left alone, so they were easy to make accommodations to. In Nineveh, engagement with the Sunnis was based on put, uh, halting Kurdish expansion and influence into Nineveh province. And we started seeing effective Kurdish and Sunni commanders replaced and you started seeing people like uh, uh, General Mehdi al-Gawari start taking command of units in Mosul, and he's a sectarian actor from Baghdad, responsible for, for killing Sunnis in Al-Anbar and getting good intel after his, his uh, interrogation techniques. So 
going forward now, we're looking, we're looking at the KRG after ISIS. So if the current ISIS strategy continues, what defeating ISIS will look like is a, a, a Mosul where the Sunni population is more distrustful than ever of Baghdad, the United States, and Kurdistan, where the population exited likely into the KRG regions to add to that 1.8 million refugee population you currently have, and with a predominantly Shia uniform force in the federal police or the emergency response battalions, but also in the hospital Shabi responsible for security. And I, I hear all the time, well, we have Christians and we have Sunnis in the hospital Shabi, and they'll be part of the hold force. Well, I'd like to see how the hold force is doing in Ramadi and Tikrit and Fallujah, because the hold force is still, uh, the, the militias still have primacy over this hold force, and they're used as a, as a PR tool, in, in my opinion. The, the strategy now, if we simply replace an ISIS flag with an Iraqi flag in Mosul, is exactly what Bayan talked about. It's ISIS morphing into an al-Qaeda model where they don't plant flags, they don't say they own this neighborhood, they don't say they own this town, but they're able to conduct terrorist operations out of them, car bombs, assassinations, start recruiting, start intimidating the reconciliation process if that does happen, where Sunnis are intimidated from join, joining the armed forces, uh, where you know there's more distrust, and, and you're likely to see these things. Uh, so we have midterm elections in 2018 here in the United States. But those elections in Iraq are key. If the Sunnis sit out that election because there's nothing basically being demonstrated to them that they have a future in their country at this point. The Kurds stand to gain big in northern Iraq. But more importantly, these militia leaders stand to gain big. And any temporary gain against ISIS that isn't done right leads to a permanent gain for Iranian influence in Iranian proxies in Iraq. And I believe that's very destabilizing, not only to Iraq, but specifically to the KRG. If you look at the Hashid al-Shabi, it's not the force that's built to go into Mosul to defeat ISIS, but it certainly looks like a force that's able to go into Kirkuk and to Hawija and take things back. And we have to look at those indicators and as, as they pop up, and I'll end with that. Great, thank you. Um, Uh, Mike, let me ask you the first question since you just met, since you just went. I mean, what what would be the elements of a U.S. strategy to help create the conditions in which the reintegration of Sunni Arabs into some semblance of a political order in Iraq can happen? What is required from the United States? A commitment, and Mattis said it the other day. Said, "America, we're not going anywhere anytime soon," and that's something you'll probably see a change with the thinking of H.R. McMaster and Mattis is you never give your enemy a timeline. You never tell a very patient and strategic enemy or adversary that you are leaving in three or four chess moves. You make sure that they know you're sticking around for a while. You use the leverage of the United States, the Sunni regional powers, the leverage of the P5 plus one, all of these leveraged points to, to put pressure on Iran to, to do the things they're good at. They've demonstrated the capability to provide electricity in Iraq, to build airfields, to, to build shrines, to facilitate travel to, to Hajjahs, to protect uh, Shia areas. Those are, those are all good things. It's when you start moving into these Sunni areas and you use the cover of going after Daesh as a, as a way to, to negate any future threat from a Sunni area, that's the problem. 
Now, we took the airfield back today. Everybody hears about, we took Diamondback and Merez back today in Mosul. Um, what we did when we took it originally is we made that the place where Iraqis from Mosul could come, feel safe, be recruited, be used as sources, and start screening them to bring them into the 2nd Iraqi Army Division at the time. I think that the airfield sends a huge signal to the damages the ISIS brand. We now have an airfield where we can conduct operations to target ISIS leadership, recruit Sunni military-age males from Mosul, and build a security force and put it in uniform where it's subject to rewards and punishments as opposed to temporary contracts uh, that Sunnis want to stay away from based on what happened to the Sons of Iraq in the Awakening. So there are opportunities at the tactical and strategic level to do things. Leverage with Baghdad, using all of our triggers, and do Mosul the way we did it back in 05, 06, and 07. We did it right. I would say we never truly defeated Al-Qaeda, but we made it difficult for them to pop up without being taken out. And, and that needs to be brought back because in 2007, you were able to use, move Peshmerga units, Sunni units, and American units to Baghdad to be part of the surge because of that success. Sorry about the long great. answer. No, that's great. And a question for Bayan. Um, I mean, Kurdish solidarity and Kurdish state building, which has gone on for the golden decade from 2003 up until the arrival of, of Islamic State, was one of the reasons for Kurdish security and one of the reasons why the Kurds have managed to hold their own in the face of Islamic State. But ever since Islamic State arrived, it's exacted an enormous toll in the Kurdish economy. And much of the institution building that had been going on for the decade prior had been ground to a halt. To add to that, the economic crisis, the humanitarian crisis, the large numbers of IDPs and other peoples that have been dislocated found refuge in Kurdistan. It's a difficult situation. The last time I was there, um, while many people were talking about the need for independence, about their desire for independence, a lot of people were also talking about the rolling political crisis within KRG. Uh, and of course, you have unhelpful neighbors uh, on all sides, um, which have a strategic interest in seeing Kurdish disunity, I would argue. Um, could you talk about the political crisis in KRG and about what the roadmap going forward looks like to, if you will, ameliorate that crisis and, and, and solve some of these disputes so that Kurdistan can continue to hold its own uh, against these rapacious outsiders? Well, I think um, whenever we've had Kurdish unity, we've been unstoppable. And that should really focus our minds. Uh, and I think it is beginning to do that. We have had a political crisis in Iraqi Kurdistan really from the summer of 2015. It hasn't been resolved. Uh, the tensions have come down enormously. Um, and I think there are two or three factors that are making the leading political parties, but particularly the KDP and the PUK, focus much more on finding a way of agreeing and a process for going forwards. And there have been many, many discussions recently, and they continue right now on uh, reaching an agreement that would then, once the two main parties reach agreement, the rest will be much easier to solve. So the three, two or three factors that are making people realize that we need unity now. One is the Mosul operation. There is light at the end of tunnel, uh, the, the tunnel, to borrow Ranj's uh, words, and the fact that defeating ISIS militarily is on the horizon 
and there needs to be a discussion both internally in Kurdistan but also in the wider Iraq and internationally about the future of Iraq and I think that is concentrating minds and making people move away from parochial and internal political pot shots at each other to think about the bigger picture. The other is that some of the political parties um, are not doing as well as they were, particularly Goran, the change movement. As you all know, it, it just flashed into being in 2009 and, and won 24 seats or around 25 seats at that time and again uh, did very well in the more recent elections and brought some very new ideas and concepts to Kurdistan. But also it was a destabilizing factor internally. <clears throat> and Goran has actually uh, weakened substantially since then. Um, there have been defections, there have been very high level resignations in the Goran party. And Goran's attempt to damage President Barzani's reputation internationally succeeded to, to some degree, but also failed. And you can see President Barzani remains President Barzani. I don't mean just technically as the president of the region, but international leaders, uh, including Secretary Mattis and Vice President Pence, um, meet him, court him, praise him and want his support. Mm. So I think what's happening internally within Goran is also having an impact on the discussions within Kurdistan. The PUK, as I'm sure you all know, has a political leadership crisis. Um, it's kind of become the status <coughs> quo, unfortunately, both for the PUK, unfortunately, but for everybody, I think, in, in Kurdistan. It's damaging the Kurdish project that there is this political crisis at the leadership level. But maybe we've all got used to it, which is not a good thing. But the crisis that we had 18 months ago is now coming down, calming down. So I think it's these factors, but really it's the fact that ISIS is about to end as a caliphate and we need to have a greater dialogue and to talk about the future of Kurdistan as an independent state that is making minds focus. And as I said, between the PUK and the KDP, there has been a lot of very, very high level dialogue and it's continuing. And there's more optimism now, cautious optimism now, that we may have a breakthrough. Great. Um, if I might, one more question, both for Ken and Ranj. Um, the, uh, the, the, the divorce between Kurdistan and other parts of Iraq uh, seems rather certain, although it was observed to me by somebody in Kurdistan that the question remains whether it's going to be a Western divorce of the sort that you had described, where lawyers come in and, and figure out who gets what, or whether it's going to be a scorched earth uh, oriental divorce, as, as this Kurdish interlocutor told me. And I guess my question for both of you is, uh, what are uh, the opportunities that the United States have and what will be required from the United States to ensure that, that this happens in an orderly fashion, uh, both in terms of military as well as diplomatic commitments? I'm very curious as well, Ranj, to circle back to some of the observations you made about people that we can work with in Najaf and Baghdad and Karbala, um, uh, people who, who also want uh, a different future for Iraq. How do we bolster them how do we empower them to shape their future? 
just start running. I mean, <clears throat> so I think I'll start with the second question. Uh, the uh, so when I was in Baghdad, um, uh, I would speak to the let's describe them as the state-aligned moderate uh, militias or actors or factions, um, and I would point out that groups like Asayip, like Kataib, like Badr even are powerful, resource-rich. They have fighting experience, but they would come back to me and say, well, we have the strength in numbers, um, but they lack the support from the U.S. in terms of financial resources, or not necessarily the U.S., but the international community, let's say. Financial resources, um, the weapons, they complain that, that the, the Iran-aligned militias tend to get better weapons, better arms, um, but they also lack the strategic communications expertise, because if there's one thing the Iran-aligned militias have is that ability to project their sentiments, their discourse, their narrative in a much more effective manner. And the international community, I think, needs to start looking at how the moderate actors, not just militias, but faction, different factions, political parties, components of civil society that, that speak the kind of language we would want them to as the international community. They talk in terms of reconciliation, stabilization, they talk about institution building, about bridging the ethnic and sectarian divisions in Iraq. Um, but unfortunately, they're unable to project that in an effective way that enables them to mobilize popular support, public support. Whereas the more hardline extreme uh, factions, militia groups, are able to uh, mobilize popular support and therefore enhance their support bases, which therefore come the elections will serve them uh, rather well, politically. Um, I'll leave the first question to, uh, to Ken. Thanks, Raj. Um, obviously, the United States has played this role in the UN as well in a variety of other different circumstances. I could draw on a lot of different analogies. The one that, that seems to be looming large in my mind um, is the process we typically refer to as the Camp David Accords, right? the process between Israel and Egypt. Um, First, worth remembering, that starts in 1973, after the October War, when the U.S. starts getting involved in the armistice negotiations, and that morphs into a wider role, a role, of course, which Anwar Sadat always envisioned, and in fact intended when he launched the October War. I also think that it's a useful one because it takes a long time, right? We remember the Camp David Accords. We remember Sadat's dramatic gesture and flying to Jerusalem and speaking to the Knesset. But we have to remember that it took a number of years before that. There were ups and downs. There were moments when both sides stormed out of the room, where the United States had to put lots of uh, bridging proposals on the table. But I think it's also important because at the end, it also gets that point that you made, Eric, when you asked the question about the continuing American role. Because ultimately, what was critical to the Camp David Accords was that ongoing American role with both Israel and with Egypt. And we played a different role for each. With Israel, we were their you know, ultimate guarantor, their ultimate savior, also the source of, of high technology military equipment. That was mostly our role. In the case of Egypt, it was about helping them to build a modern military, which they wanted for a variety of reasons, and also trying to help them as best we could economically. And I'll be the first one to say that we really fell down on the job there, but at least the intent was there from the beginning. And we certainly did co uh, contribute a lot of resources. 
I mention that as being important because I think that negotiations between Iraq and Kurdistan will require similar roles from the United States. And we also need to look at those roles as being, in the terms that political scientists use, side payments. Okay? This is going to be a very difficult set of negotiations. If it works, neither side is going to get everything that it wants from the negotiations. Both sides are going to have to go back to their constituencies and say, well, we got this and we didn't get that, and we had to give up this. And all of it is going to be so much easier if they can both go back to their constituents and say, well, we got this and this and this from the other side, and it's true we had to give up this and this and this, but the Americans are also going to give us this and this and this and this. Right? If there is the prospect of American engagement along the lines of what Mike was talking about with both military and economic assistance for both countries, that's going to make all of the concessions that they have to make toward each other so much easier. And in addition, it leaves the United States there as that guarantor of the agreement, that we are guaranteeing it. And if you guys violate it, not only are you going to start conflict with yourselves, you're going to start it with the United States, which is providing so much benefit to you in so many ways. I think you know, it is one, I think, and if people recognize this, it's one of the reasons why the Egyptian-Israeli peace, despite the hard feelings on both sides, has remained so stable for so long. One, one final point on that, on that. I think one of the key or main spoilers uh, of a Kurdish state, whilst Turkey has its own concerns because of its own domestic Kurdish issues, uh, the main spoiler for me for an independent Kurdish state would be Iran. Uh, and that's because the notion of a sovereign Kurdish state right by its border that is able to host US military personnel, Western military personnel that probably will be pro-Israeli, that will have strong ties to the Gulf, that has its own airfield, hydrocarbons. That's a nightmare scenario so far as Iran's geopolitical strategic interests are concerned, not just in terms of Iran, uh, in terms of uh, its interests in Iraq, but Syria and the region more generally. Thank you. Um, it's important to keep in mind uh, going forward. Let's open this up to questions. Uh, sir, right here in the third row in. Um, let's, uh, since we have about 20 minutes or so, let's be mindful of everybody's time. And if you can introduce yourself and, and then ask your question, um, uh, please no comments. But, but. I'm Peter Humphrey. I'm broadcaster, intel analyst, and a former diplomat. Um, my big concern is keeping Turkish armor from rolling into Kurdistan. And I think the big mistake we're making is uh, calling it Iraqi Kurdistan. I wonder if it might be possible to join uh, northeast Syria into a more uh, comprehensive Kurdish state, thereby uh, co-opting the YPG and in exchange uh, for making two promises to Turkey. One, we don't take any Turkish territory. And two, the now newly united Kurds will uh, suppress the PKK. Isn't that a possible model? Bayan, would you like to take a stab at that? <laughs> I think uh, achieving independence just for Iraqi Kurdistan or Syrian Kurdistan is a big enough struggle that to try to join two of them is today, I would say impossible or almost impossible. I should never say never. Um, you know, we're all linked by blood. We are relatives to each other, my own family. I have blood relatives in Syria, in Iraq, in Turkey. Through marriage, I have relatives in Iran. 
So these borders, while they're very real and they have a real impact on all of us, they are also artificial. So what happens in Turkey, in Iran, in Syria, in Iraq affects all of us, truly affects all of us. And you touch on some very important points about our relationship with PYD and the PKK. But I think an independent Rojava and Bashur, as we call it, together is today unrealistic. Thank you. Uh, in the front row here, if we could bring the mic over here. <clears throat> Laurie Milroy, Kurdistan 24. Um, two questions for Bayan, maybe you could answer them briefly. One, I'm, I'm very interested to know what, what the significance of the uh, meetings that President Barzani had in, at the Munich Security Conference. How would you characterize them? And the second question, what's the situation with the PKK in Sinjar? Uh, thank you. Well, the meetings at the Munich conference uh, were very good. President Barzani had meetings with European leaders, uh, with American leaders, and also, of course, with Prime Minister Abadi and his delegation. Uh, the meetings with uh, Vice President Pence, with General Mattis, and with Brett McGurk were very productive. Um, I understand that uh, General Mattis uh, is explained that he was very familiar with Iraq, with Kurdistan, and it was a very warm, cordial, friendly meeting. And in all of those meetings, both sides reiterated support for each other and discussed the uh, ongoing Mosul operation. So I would say I would characterize them as very, very positive and a reiteration of the ongoing cooperation with each other. Um, your other question was about the PKK in Sinjar. Uh, it's problematic. Um, you know, the PKK or the PYD helped the Yazidis in 2004 when they were attacked by ISIS. And we are grateful for that. And by the way, I'm from Sinjar. So I'm personally and officially, whatever, in every capacity, I am grateful for what they did. They saved lives. But now, unfortunately, the PKK or the PYD, I mean, they're one and the same, their presence in Sinjar has become problematic. Many Yazidis do not want them there. They are fearful that they're recruiting their young people. They see them as a destabilizing force and you could argue that it gives Turkey an excuse to have its forces in Bashik, which is not very far away. So we have asked that the PKK, the PYD, should leave that area. And I believe the majority of the people of Sinjar, the Yazidis, and others have the same view. Thank you. Uh, sir, in the front row here. Thank you very much to the panel. Um, Abbas Kadam, uh, Saez Johns Hopkins. The heavy lifting is on you today, Bayan. Uh, so <laughs> the, the question that I have, you, you said something that is very interesting, uh, that the trust was completely lost in Iraq uh, after ISIS. Uh, and, and now uh, this probably runs against the prevailing narrative in Iraq 
that actually the battle to liberate Mosul has uh, restored uh, the uh, the trust, uh, given that the Iraqis are doing all the fighting, that the Peshmerga and the uh, federal Iraqi forces are fo fighting for the first time uh, in their history, that uh, the uh, Sunni tribes are fa uh, fighting together, uh, and Mosul could never have been uh, this way uh, if there was completely no trust among these components that are collaborating. I'm interested in what kind of a counter-narrative that you would give to that prevailing narrative there. And if I may say to my good friend Mike Prajant, you know, Hadi uh, al-Amri is a possibility. I don't think that Qais al-Khazali or Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, for the reasons you and I know, would be candidates. But if not Hadi al-Amri, then how is it going to be shaping since the other options are Abadi, who is seen as weak, or Maliki, who is not wanted. So thank you for, for all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Bayan? Um, I absolutely agree, Abbas, if I may use your first name. Um, the cooperation with regards to the Mosul operation on the military front is unprecedented. That's a word that's used over and over again, but it's true and um, has been a cause for celebration. And we applaud what the uh, Iraqi forces are doing. The Mosul fight is bitter, it's tough, it's uh, urban. So I don't disagree with you there at all. I think the issue for, for, from the Kurdish perspective is that that is pretty much the only cooperation, the only real dialogue, the only real connection that we have with Baghdad. We have 1.8 million Syrian refugees and displaced Iraqis in Kurdistan. Baghdad barely helps them, barely helps us. There is some help, but very little. Our economy is suffering because of the low oil prices, because of the humanitarian crisis, and the cost of the war. Of course, we're very grateful that the United States and others have provided weapons and training, but the cost of the war is on us. So, you know, meanwhile, it's three years now since Baghdad cut off our budget. So it's these elements. So yes, on the military side, there's unprecedented good cooperation. But in every other sense, economically, in terms of healthcare, in terms of caring for the displaced, um, in terms of political dialogue, there really is a disconnect. And I would also say what I was trying to say at the beginning about mistrust, a deep, deep distrust among all the components. The Christians and the Yazidis, they are undergoing a genocide. It was their neighbors, their neighbors who became Daesh, who became ISIS. Daesh didn't fly in from Mars. It's a local entity. Yes, foreign fighters came in, but it's a local entity. How can you go back and live in your village knowing that the next village is where, you know, they came and said, these are Yazidi girls, take them. These are Christians, threaten them. So that's what I mean about mistrust. And it's much deeper and wider than that, but that's what I was referring to. Mike? I would just say that we need an insurgent candidate in Iraq who's not an insurgent, who's not a militia member, and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so over here in the third row back, please. 
Uh, good afternoon. Brandon Wheeler from the Freedom Research Foundation. Um, tr uh, try to provide a little bit of relief to our representative from Kurdistan. Um, I would say uh, 10 years ago when I was first in Howler, you know, there were no roads. It was all dirt roads, and now it's incredible to be here in a room in Washington to see a representative representing that region. And as we all know, Kurdistan, of course, is on the confluence of four major countries, so not just the the Bashuri region. Uh, the question is, um, as Michael and Ranj astutely pointed out, we've seen the expansion of Iranian influence throughout not just Iraq, but also Syria and the Turkish influence into Syria. So the question is for the whole panel. Is it practical for America to have a policy in the region without having a direct and very uh, stringent policy with both the two major powers that are influencing the conflict and complicating it, Turkey and Iran? And secondly, what would that policy be? I'll sit this one out. Ken? <laughs> you know, that, honestly, that requires an entirely other session, right, to talk about what U.S. policy or Iran should. I will just make a couple of points with regard to Iran. Um, first point, yes, you're absolutely correct, and as both Ranj and Mike have pointed out, Bayan as well, uh, Iran is a pernicious influence in this region in a whole variety of different ways. Um, and ignoring them is not the answer. Right. And I think that uh, you know, one of the mistakes that the Obama administration made was in assuming that it was all about the nuclear deal, that you only needed the nuclear deal, and Iran really wasn't important in any other way. I think that we've recognized that that has not been the case. Second point, uh, if you're going to push back on Iran, however, uh, you need to be smart about it. The Iranians are not idiots. They are very good at retreating when the United States comes directly at them. They have a healthy respect for American military power. Uh, if we hit them in one place, they'll hit us someplace else. They will wait. They'll look for weakness. Um, just kind of spasmodically reacting and going after them is, A, not going to have a terribly big meaning on them, and B, it's not going to actually make the situation in the region better. It'll make the situation worse. Right? Last point, and kind of following up on that. While the Iranians do many things in the Middle East that are pernicious to the stability and, and the peace and prosperity of the region, we should also keep in mind they are not 10 feet tall. Okay? They've never started a civil war on their own. They've never successfully overthrown a government on their own. Uh, they've never successfully started an insurgency on their own. They try to, right? they typically fail when they do so. Where they have success is where those things are pre-existing and then they come in and make them worse. Right? The Iranians go looking for problems, and then they exacerbate them. Right? And what we have also seen is, if you really want to limit Iran's ability to make trouble in the region, the best way to do it is to deal with the problems that the Iranians are trying to exacerbate. Right? And the best example of that was the example that Mike raised early of 2008. Because the other thing that happened in 2008 was charge of the Knights. Right? When Prime Minister Maliki, for reasons of his own, decided to go after Jaysh al-Mehdi. At that point in time, the last of the great Shia militias tied to Iran. They ran Basra, they ran Sadr City and Amara and Kurna and a whole variety of other, state, other cities in Iraq. And Maliki brought in, and Mike remembers this better than any of us, brought in most Sunni-dominated brigades from Anbar into Basra to fight Jaysh al-Mehdi, and they were welcomed. Right? The people, and I remember being down there right after it, the people were delighted to have them because they weren't seen as Sunnis from Anbar. They were seen as Iraqi soldiers here to fight agents of Iran. 
right? And when that happened, they not only pushed them out of, out of Basra, they pushed them out of Sadr City, out of Amara, out of Kurna. They ran the table. And Iran's influence in Iraq was minuscule, right? It was almost non-existent because Iraqis <clears throat> felt strong and united. And they pushed back on Iran far more effectively than the United States ever could. Right, so as we think about the region, and I think you're right, we have to think strategically, and we have to think about the role that Iran plays in exacerbating all these problems. The most important thing, solve the problems. Solve the problem, and it will solve the Iranian aspect. Thank you. <laughs> Another session. Uh, well, well, one thing, if I, if I may, Eric, if I, yeah, absolutely. just to point out, I think there's this uh, feeling uh, in DC, in London, internationally, that Iran's influence is irresistible uh, in Iraq, uh, but it's very resistible. Um, whilst the leadership of some of the factions, groups we've described, might be heavily Iran-aligned, the rank and file, the, the street, so to speak, the, the individuals, the fighters that comprise these groups, now these these are the, the, the generation of Iraqis whose political consciousness was, was shaped in the 1990s period. Uh, their, their memory is of Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr, Muqtada's father, espousing Iraqi nationalistic, Arab-centered uh, rhetoric and narratives. He was, uh, uh, to a degree, uh, a rival uh, or, or uh, saw Iran's clerical rules as, as a rival. Um, Iran stepped in when the U.S. Uh, moved away. Um, and I think when the, the, the groups that are aligned to Iran fail to deliver basic services, fail to provide stability and security in the coming years, the Iraqi state and its institutions must be ready to step in. And that's how you challenge the space that Iran has enjoyed um, uncontested for the past five or six years. I hate to say we have time for one more question, so let's hope it's a good one. Um, Ma'am, the front row. Yeah. Uh, so, a couple questions quickly. This is the last one. Um, the first one is going to be for Representative Bayan. Uh, uh, you mentioned about the lack of trust among the Iraqi communities. Uh, and there is a kind of a sentiment among the Yazidis, they also lost trust in the KRG and the Kurdish Peshmerga. Uh, do you see that, that situation? Uh, whether it will be a Republic of Kurdistan or just Kurdistan region, there will be a more autonomous, kind of not Canton, what the PKK claim it, but kind of a more autonomous for the Yazidis in Sinjar. And the second question is going to be for Dr. Ken, I think, is that you mentioned about the, the, the it, it was a bad idea, the marriage between Iraq and uh, Kurdistan. Uh, well, uh, I'm just trying to quote the readout from the vice president office after the meeting with uh, uh, with President Barzani. The, the vice president conveyed, that's the quote, uh, the, uh, conveyed continued U.S. support for a unified federal and democratic Iraq and encouraged close cooperation between the government of Iraq and the Kurdistan regional government. Is that the, the thing that the United States they don't hear what you are talking about or it is the same old-fashioned of the U.S. government, they, we should just, it's a better idea just to keep Iraq as it is because that's the best interest of the United States. And if I may, just one last question for, uh, <laughs> sorry, one my last for. Very quickly, please. Yeah, okay. Thanks. So you mentioned about the, the, the rise of the 
uh, Shia militias, uh, uh, it is really important just to mention what you mentioned because if we have the rise of the Shia militia, that that means in the you know, coming elections we will have more pro-Iranian politicians in the government. In the case Kurdistan is separating, does the U.S. not you know losing the balance in Iraq if they don't have Kurdistan anymore in Baghdad? Uh, so th the question for me was about whether the Yazidis would have an autonomous area. Um, in fact, it, the Yazidis and uh, Christians in Nineveh Plain, Yazidis in Sinjar and other minorities have been calling for different ideas about autonomy. Sometimes they're talking about a safe zone, um, an administrative zone, where they run their affairs. Other times they're talking about carving out provinces for themselves out of the wider Nineveh province. Our position is that we should listen to them and we have no issue with autonomy for them, uh, whether it's one autonomous region for the Yazidis and Christians, which is one idea that's been floated in Washington, or two provinces, two autonomous zones, um, but I think what's important is that we should listen to them and we should give them what is necessary. Some people have said, well, this is a very sectarian answer to the problem of coexistence. That's one way of describing it. But another way is to say these people have suffered genocide and they want to feel protected. And if they feel more protected by having their own administration, their own protection force with, they have to have backing just because of the sheer numbers, um, I think they have that right, and that is our position. But there hasn't really been enough dialogue to really go deep into this subject. That's great. Ken? So on the question that you asked me, and first off, uh, all the Vice President was doing was restating American, American position. Worth noting, international law is a very heavy bias against secessionism in favor of existing borders. That said, the United States has supported secessionist movements. We supported the secession of South Sudan, of Bosnia, of you know, Slovenia before that. It's all doable, right? But the real point here is that if the United States is going to do this, it would represent an important break from the past. In the past, we've mostly not done it because of all, there's always been a short-term consideration that has led us to say, not now, right? What I'm arguing for is taking a strategic perspective and recognizing what is ultimately in the long-term best interests of the United States, in addition to, again, the Kurds and the Iraqis. Um, but the way to do that is not the Vice President going out and making a statement to the press. The way to do that is to have a rollout, right, of a brand new policy toward this part of, of the world in which that is part of a wider set of goals and objectives that you lay out, also with new policy mechanisms to actually realize it. I, if I were in this administration and Vice President Pence had just gone out and said, I no longer support the unity of Iraq, I would add a heart attack too. Thank you. Mike. Uh, just real quick, um, the more we ignore or we choose to obfuscate the role of IRGC-backed militias in Iraq, the more you're likely to get pro-Iranian candidates in these, these elections. Let's remember the message that these Iranian-backed militias have, have said to Iraqis. They've said to the Sunni population, we are coming. And they've demonstrated that. They've also said that to the Kurds, that we are coming. So we need to stop ignoring the role of the Shia militias. And we can't hide what they're doing by making up a term 
Iraqi government approved paramilitary forces and have the media put that out. That's something that should, should end. That's all I'll say to that. Thank you very much. With that, I really want to thank our panel. Um, there's a lot of questions left undressed, but hopefully we'll have an opportunity to come back. Thank you all for coming.